the older I get, the less I really want things to, to change. Even me preaching this morning, I don't like, you know. I mean, I'm used to Jim being up here, and so, you know, it's a, it's a different thing. The fact that Nathan and Lindsay are taking a little kind of hiatus right now, leave of absence, I don't like that. Um, you know, we had a great time this weekend as we got to see uh, Joe installed as the president of Campbellsville University. I, I, I don't like that. You know, I mean, there, there's so many things that change that, you know, and, it's, and change is really kind of inevitable. One of the things that I had a chance to do as we were going up to this little uh, installation ceremony at Campbellsville was to go through the community that Susan and I began our ministry in at Salem Baptist Church. And as we drove through the community, I realized this is a place that things don't really change very much. I took a picture of the old red barn. Now, there are a lot of old red barns in that part of Kentucky. And this is not the original old red barn. And I know that because when I got there and I was starting to visit around in the community, someone told me, they said, you know, you need to get to this house you're going to by going down to the old red barn and turning right. Now, this is the day before GPS. This is the day before, you know, anything other than just people giving you hopefully good directions. And so I said, okay, so where's the old red barn? They said, the old red barn is just past the Grider twins where they were raised. <laughs> I said, the Grider twins? I said, yeah, Gene and Janice. I said, Gene and Janice are married and have teenagers. And he said, yeah, but we still call them the Grider twins. And so I went down there looking for this old red barn and got horribly lost and so when I saw the man who'd give me the directions, one of our church members, the next Sunday, I said, man, I never could find that. And he said, did you find the barn? I said, no. He said, well, it was torn down about 20 years ago. <laughs> but everybody knows that that is the original red barn in Barron County. Well, you know, I went back there and things looked just about the same, the way that they always did. And I was reminded of something, you know, that aside from little places like this where you can go back and just grab a little piece of your history, the fact is life moves on, doesn't it? I mean, change is inevitable. One man said that Christians, that we are not supposed to merely endure change and not to profit necessarily from change, but actually Christians are to be the cause of it. We're to be change agents in this world. You remember reading through the book of Acts in chapter 17 where in Thessalonica, you know, the people there said of the Christians, those people who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I think that's probably my favorite description of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. We are the people who should be initiating change, that we should be the ones that are causing change all around us. And so this morning, I'm just going to talk with you a little bit from Nehemiah about how we can turn our world upside down, how we can upend our world, our personal world, and the world that we live in, the world all around us. Three things that I'm going to talk about this morning, three questions. Who can change the world? Who can change the world? How does change occur? And what does change really change? So, easy questions. Who can change it? How does it occur? And when you get right down to it, what does change really change? So let's jump in this morning and look at our passage and talk about these things. Who can change the world? And the answer is a very simple answer, and that is to say that people change the world. But not just 
special people, but rather ordinary people, people like you and I. In the economy of God, we as God's people play a very vital role. You know, Romans 10, 13 says this, how shall they, how shall they believe if they have not heard And how shall they hear without a preacher? There has to be that person, that change agent, the one who is proclaiming the gospel, that servant of Christ who's willing to go wherever they're needed to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you know, it's not just these people who are extraordinary. This week, I know like you, you've probably been hearing a lot about Queen Elizabeth's passing and all that's going on there and you know, you may have even gone in and started watching, you know, Seasons of the Crown, you know, trying to get into this thing of, and you know, and this is a woman who reigned for a long time, over 70 years. As a matter of fact, putting it into perspective, I heard someone say that the first prime minister that Queen Elizabeth appointed was Winston Churchill. And Winston Churchill was born 100 years before the last prime minister was born, who she just appointed two days before she died. A hundred years between them. Now, 15 prime ministers. Do you remember their names? I mean, you'd have to be a really Anglophile to, to know the names of them. We know Winston Churchill, but do you know the last one that was just appointed? You see, the fact of the matter is, most of us are not significant to the world. We're only significant to a very small group of people. We're not the people that people remember necessarily, like Winston Churchill. And so then we come to a man like Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah, was he a great scholar? Was he a a great individual? Well, we look back in retrospect and we say, yes, God used him in a mighty way. But what did Nehemiah say about himself? At the end of chapter 2, Nehemiah said this, uh, chapter 1, I was cupbearer to the king. I was a cupbearer to the king. Now, when we read that phrase, a lot of times we might think, oh, okay, so this guy was right up there with the king. He was side by side with royalty. He had access to the king. So the king part of it grabs our attention. But if you think about what it meant to be a cupbearer to the king, that meant that Nehemiah was the one who made sure the king was not being poisoned by what he was drinking. So in the economy of things, Nehemiah was actually a very expendable person. He was someone that the king had to make sure that the king was safe. It was a position that we would say, well, it was a great position, but it was also a position for someone who was expendable, someone who could be lost. But he was a common man, but with a very uncommon interest, a very uncommon concern. And that was how to change the world. When his brothers came back from Jerusalem, the Bible says that he got them together and he asked them, what's happened in Jerusalem? And they said to him, well, the walls have been torn down. The gates are burned with fire. And Nehemiah knew that this was terrible, terrible news. How is Nehemiah such an extraordinary individual? I think that his concern was evident in three different ways. The first is that Nehemiah had a great curiosity. He wanted to know what was going on. When his brothers came down, the Bible says that he actually sat down and he questioned them. Now, this wasn't just a random, hey, how are things on your trip? But this was a, almost an interrogation to find out exactly what was going on with the remnant that had remained there in Jerusalem, to find out what the status of things was back there in his home, a home, by the way, that he had never lived in because he was one of the ones that was in exile. He wanted to know what was happening back in Jerusalem, a curiosity. 
You know, the amazing thing about our living today is that curiosity can be easily satisfied, can it? How many times have you sat down and had a conversation with someone and they'll say, hey, I wonder who was the last prime minister that Queen Elizabeth appointed? And someone says, oh, I know. Oh, it was so-and-so. And so that's the end of the, of the question, right? I mean, we can satisfy our curiosity in a moment. As long as the curiosity about trivia, about things that honestly really don't matter. But if you want to be a person whose curiosity leads to change in this world, you have to ask specific people about specific questions that have to do with things that are of importance, things that really matter. And so Nehemiah was that kind of man whose curiosity reached beyond the borders of where he had lived to find out what's going on in this place where I have always called home. He also had a passion. The Bible tells us that he became emotionally involved. He said, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. Now, most scholars have said that this wasn't just a matter of sitting down, but really collapsing. The emotion so overwhelmed him that all he could do was simply find a place that he could collapse and just weep over the story that he had heard about what was happening in this place of Jerusalem. And we realize when we see that, that that kind of passion is something that God looks for. Not just curiosity about what's going on in the world, but a passion to see how we might get involved to change things. One great preacher from years ago, Vance Havner, once said, God uses broken things. It takes a broken soil to produce a crop, broken clouds to give rain, broken grain to give bread, broken bread to give strength, and it is the broken alabaster box that brings forth its perfume. It was the broken Peter, weeping bitterly, who returns with greater power than before. It's very easy for all of us to argue, criticize, and condemn, but redemption is costly. And comfort draws from the deep. Brains can argue, but it takes a heart that's moved with compassion to actually change this world. And of course, that brings us to the last thing that Nehemiah had, along with curiosity and along with this passion, it was a volition. Because Nehemiah, after he heard what was happening and he had gone through this period of weeping, the Bible says, then he said, for some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. So after the emotional event passed by, Nehemiah then said, here's my plan. I'm going to pray. I'm going to, I'm going to mourn. I'm going to fast to determine what it is that God would have me to do. You know, sometimes we do okay with curiosity, and we can even work up some passion. But when passion becomes volition, that's when change takes place. I remember years ago when we were living in Venezuela, we had a major catastrophic event where about 40,000 people died in one night down on the coast of Venezuela in a massive mudslide. When our people came in from Global Relief and they were working with us to help these folks down on the coast, I remember sitting down with them and they said to me, you have exactly one month. I said, what do you mean one month? They said, because in the United States and around the world, people's attention span to any catastrophe is about a month long. So you need to do what you're going to do and letting people know and getting the resources you need in one month because another catastrophe is going to come along, another event's going to happen, and everybody's going to forget about this, and they're going to remember this. 
And so you have passion that needs to become volition, a long-term commitment to commit not just my emotional side, but my volitional side to really do something to make a difference in this world. I wonder if you and I have that kind of curiosity and passion and volition to really upend our world, to change things in the world around us, but also to change things in our own life, in our own world. You know, one of my favorite books to read, you may have read, it was written by a, name, a man by the name of William Carey. William Carey was a great missionary. The title of the book is An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christ to Use Means for the Conversions of the Heathens, in which the religious states of different nations of the world, the success of former undertakings, and the practicality of further undertakings are considered. You read it? <laughs> now, the book's 87 pages long, not counting the title, which is about a page in itself. But this book was actually written by a man who was just a cobbler. As a matter of fact, when someone said to William Carey one time, aren't you a shoemaker? He said, no, I don't make shoes. I'm just a cobbler. I just repair shoes. But William Carey was a man who God had given this tremendous curiosity and passion and a volition where he stood up in one of the meetings of all of the brethren in that, that place in England and, and, and said to them, we need to take the gospel to all the world. And you may remember the story that one of the older men stood up by the name of John Ryland and said, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do without your aid or mine. But William Carey did not sit down. Rather, he formed the Baptist Missionary Society and went as one of its first missionaries. And I love what William Carey said years later. He said, I can plod. I can persevere to any definite pursuit. Plodding. Plodding along. Making sure that that volition matches our passions. Because passion can take you only so far. But then volition is that commitment to continue going. When the enthusiasm of everyone else. When even your own passion may begin to wane. To say this is still what God would have me to do. And William Carey did that through all the years that he was there in India. As a matter of fact he went through seven years without a single convert. Seven years to the first convert. At the end of his entire time there in that country, he had only seen 700 people come to know Jesus Christ. In a country of millions and millions of people, he had to bury two wives. He buried several children. But God used him in the mission there through those people who came to know Christ to translate the Bible into seven major languages, 209 dialects, portions of the Bible. And God used this cobbler plotter, this ordinary believer to upend the world for the Lord Jesus Christ to where he became known, it is known as the father of modern missions. I saw someone the other day up at Sanford University and they had a t-shirt on. Everybody at Sanford has t-shirts with stuff on it, right? I mean, you just can't just wear a t-shirt. So it has something written and his said, I am a whosoever and I asked him if his last name was Will, but he didn't catch the joke. So, <laughs> hope y'all do. But I thought about that, and I thought, you know, that's really who God uses, isn't it? Whosoever will may come. Whosoever may be used by God to do all kinds of things in changing this world. 
So that brings us to the second question. How does change occur? How does change occur in this world? And the answer is very, very simple. It is through persistent prayer. God uses ordinary people in persistent prayer. Dallas Willard, a book that we've been reading as a staff in our Bible studies on Tuesday morning, said this about prayer. Prayer is talking to God about what we are doing together. Don't you love that? Prayer is talking to God about what we are doing together. Because for one thing, it makes it very personal. It's what God is doing around me and in me and through me. But it also takes away all egoism because it is what God is doing. It is what the Lord is doing through us. And so we are driven to prayer because we know that if change is going to occur in this world, it's not going to be by my abilities and by my skills and by my set of of advantageous things that I have acquired through the years. But it is absolutely dependent upon the Lord and through prayer. Prayer is that powerful means of changing the world for Jesus Christ. Years ago, I attended Southwestern Seminary. I did not graduate from there, but attended there for a little while. And I remember we, I found the library. Like at Sanford, y'all found the library, right? You know where it is? I found the library, spent a few um, moments in it. Fleming Library at Sanford University. I remember years later, as I was on the mission field, they told the story about William Fleming's wife, Bessie. Now, William Fleming was a philanthropist in Texas, had donated all kinds of money to Baptist concerns. He was the one that gave the library to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. After he died, his wife sent letters all throughout the world to missionaries saying, if you need any books, let me know. Guess what? Two people answered her. Two people out of all the missionaries. One of them said, yes, I need this volume of this. And she sent it. The other person said, I have a library that we're trying to start at the seminary. Could you send me the books for this library? And she did both things. One person got one book. The other person got a whole library from Bessie Fleming. Do you know what the difference is? That missionary knew who she was. He knew exactly who was asking, what do you need? That is how we are with the Lord. The Lord comes to us and says, what do you need? And we as his people need to recognize that it is the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, the God who saved them with his outstretched arm and his mighty power, the God who can do anything, who is inviting us to talk to him about what we're doing together. I love this prayer that we find in Nehemiah. We read part of it just a moment ago. But I think it's probably one of the most beautiful prayers in the Old Testament. Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant with those of love, with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer. Your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, the laws, and the decrees that you gave to your servant Moses. But then listen to what he says. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling 
for my name. Nehemiah said, they are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Isn't that a great prayer? You know, it tells me a lot about who we're praying to. We're praying to a God of grace who keeps his covenant of love. A God of grace who keeps his covenant of love. He is a God that reaches out to us and to all the world through this expression of love to each and every person. It is that unmerited favor. The fact that no one deserves what God gives, but that God is gracious in reaching out. So many years ago in India, one of the missionaries was asked, what are you doing to find success here? And the missionary said to them, well, we're finding success because really the people aren't asking, does God exist? But rather the people are asking, where is God? What power does God have to help me? How can I receive his help? And under those conditions, we have a great advantage because our God is in all places, has all power, and is always ready to help those who call upon him. We have a God who reaches out to this world through his covenant of love. But Nehemiah said he's also a God of mercy. He said, I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted wickedly towards you. And yet God always expresses mercy. I learned a new word for mercy this week. I think it's pretty interesting. You know, I don't mind somebody saying, well, I'm going to have mercy on you. Because uh, mercy now is this term that is a theological, Baptist, biblical term. You know, we have mercy on somebody. Try sometimes using the word pity. I don't want anybody to say, oh, you're so pitiful. <laughs> but you know, that's really what God says when he sees us. God says, you are pitiful. But he says, and I will have pity on you. Because when God has pity on us, that means that God is saying, you can't do anything for yourself because we have all offended him. And yet God, through his grace and his mercy, his pity, brings us back where we've been exiled, where we have wandered. Even if it's from the farthest horizon, God brings us back to the place where his name dwells. The third thing this prayer tells us is this, that God is a God of promise. Don't you love it? Moses praying to God, and he says to God, God, you remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses? Now, I know you said that if we're unfaithful that you'll scatter us to the, all the nations, but you also said that if we return to you and obey your commands, that even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, you will gather them back to this place where you have, have said this is the dwelling place for your name. Isn't that tremendous? That Moses would intercede for his people in such a way that he would say to God, do you remember what you have promised? We talk, about, we, we talk about claiming the promises of God. You have to know them in the first place, right? But then to be bold enough as God's people to say, Lord, I want to claim this promise, the promise you have made for my own life. And not only for your life, but for the lives of people all around you, even people that you don't know in this moment. One of our, one of our missionaries was talking about their parents coming to visit them in the Muslim lands and how traumatic it was 
to wake up every morning to the cry of the mosque, Allahu Akbar, in the morning, every morning, and then several times during the day. And the missionary's mother said that was like hearing a, a cry from the depths of hell from people who don't know the Lord in his saving grace and in his mercy. But when someone asked her, well, don't you hate it that your kids are there? She said, oh, no, I don't. I'm, I'm glad that they're there because this is something that I know. Lostness is so vast. Eternity is so long. And the time is so short that if we're going to see our world change, then we have to be those ordinary people who are persistent in prayer that God would change our world. But let me just go back to the very basic question. What does change really change? You know, sometimes we realize that when we talk about the kingdom of God, that, um, and we pray, you know, that we want God's kingdom, you know, to be realized in our own lives, which is the effective dimension of God's rule in our life that you and I also have our own little kingdoms, you know? The things that I think I can control. I mean, you have things you think you control, right? Now, it doesn't take very long in life to realize that there are a lot of things that are outside of our control and that a lot of things, our plans just go awry because of one little thing that happens. But this is one thing that I know, and that is, what does change change? It changes me very, very personally and very, very profoundly. You see, it's not a question of my service, but rather my servanthood. We sang about that this morning. Make me a servant. And you see, we've got to realize that being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ isn't a question of just service. It is a question of identity. Because anybody can do something to serve someone else. Because I'm choosing to serve you. But if I say to you, I am a servant and I am your servant, what does that mean? I no longer choose how to serve you. You tell me what you need me to do. And what that means is that our lives will be inconvenienced by other people. That other people who really take us up on that offer to say we are a servant of Jesus Christ will say, then we can ask you to do whatever we need you to do. Because it's not just service, it is servanthood. It's also not a question of ability or even availability, but a question of the sovereignty of God. The, the fact that God has the right as our sovereign God to do all kinds of things with our lives. Two questions. Does God have the right to do with my life whatever he pleases? What would you say? Well, of course he does. Second question. Can he act recklessly with my life? That's a harder question. Can God act recklessly? As the world looks at it, as our family may look at it, can God act recklessly, recklessly with our life? Can God put us in a place of danger? Can God put us in a place where we're not comfortable? Can God lead us to do something that goes against the flow of culture, against the wishes of family and friends? And yet we know that this is what God is asking us to do. And finally and ultimately, it is a question of our decision, about our decision. You know, in chapter 2, we didn't read this this morning, but I think this is probably 
probably the key verse for the book of Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah went to the king in chapter 2, and he put his position before the king, and the king said to him, what is it that you want? In chapter 2, verse 4, Nehemiah prayed once again, and then he answered the king and said, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, send me to the city of Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king With the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will you be gone, your journey taken, when will you get back? And it pleased the king to send me. And here it is. So I set a time. You see, curiosity is good. Passion is fundamental. That that volition to go. Being changed so that God can use us in a mighty way. But you've got to set a time. You've got to say, this is when I begin to do what God has asked me to do. I don't know about you, I'm probably one of the greatest procrastinators in the world. Do I have any kindred spirits in here? You know, I I raised a son who in his senior yearbook wrote his phrase, you know, everybody's supposed to write their life model, and his was, if it weren't for the last minute, nothing would ever get done. He learned that from me. But when it comes to upending our world, to making effective change, to even being changed personally, internally, God says to us, have you set a time? Have you made a decision? When will you begin to do what I've asked you to do? You know, we come to this moment in our service, we call the time of invitation. And it's in our bulletin. It's a part of our culture. But it really is a biblical invitation. Because every time that Jesus spoke to crowds, he gave some sort of invitation to follow, to act, to move, to do something. And the saddest stories are those who walked away and said, I won't do what God wants me to do. What about you this morning? What is God leading you to do in your life to make a difference in your world? How does God want you to change this morning? It may be that God wants you to do something as simple as uniting your life with this church, being a part of what God is doing here. It may be that God is speaking to you about your relationship with Him and how He wants you to be that servant, that leader servant that God can use to change this world. As we stand this morning and as we sing, whatever it is that God has asked you to do, I pray that God will find us faithful in doing what God has spoken to our hearts about this morning. Let's stand together, and as we stand, let's sing.
been a good morning to be in God's house, and I pray that we have a great afternoon. Um, by the way, I just, you may have noticed we don't have our percussion here today. Al's getting ready. They're doing a super jazz festival at 3 o'clock this afternoon down at John Carroll. So you want to get some jazz? That's where you can get it this afternoon. Whether you do that or not, at 5 o'clock, we'll be back here for our evening Bible study and other activities. And so I hope that you'll be a part of that. Come and join us this evening. We're so glad that you are here this morning with us as we worship together. We're going to have a word of prayer and sing one last song, and then we'll be dismissed. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this time that we have to come into your presence. Father, to worship you and to hear your word proclaimed. We're grateful, Father, for the fact that as we meet, that you meet with us, and that, Father, as we go, you go with us. Father, to lead us into those relationships, into those encounters, where we have the opportunity to really be a servant of Jesus Christ. And, Father, to make a change in this world, even to upend the world, that, Lord, you have privileged us to live in. Bless, we pray, as we go from this place, that we would be the light the feet, the hands, and the voice of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.